Welcome to this 11th Roundtable Discussion produced by Transparent Media Truth. This discussion was recorded on July 22, 2020. Our guests on the show today are representatives from the Action for Assange Network, an organization of activists dedicated to fighting for the freedom of journalist Julian Assange of WikiLeaks. Assange is currently incarcerated in Belmarsh Prison, England, while awaiting the completion of an extradition trial that may result in his movement to the United States to face criminal charges under the Espionage Act of 1917. This discussion should be of interest to all those concerned about press freedoms in the United States and around the world as the First Amendment of the Constitution comes under attack. Julian Assange has been no friend to the U.S. military establishment as WikiLeaks often publishes classified or otherwise hidden primary documentation providing underhanded and often illegal activity by the military-industrial complex and other government and corporate actors. After working with whistleblower Chelsea Manning to produce the video Collateral Murder, showing military personnel gunning down innocent Iraqis in an act of unprovoked violence, the U.S. government, along with corporate media, initiated a smear campaign which ultimately led to his seeking asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, rather than face certain punishment at the hands of U.S. authorities. Continuing his work while confined to the embassy, WikiLeaks released the now infamous emails from the Democratic National Committee revealing institutional bias towards presidential candidate Hillary Clinton while actively working against her rival, Senator Bernie Sanders. This seemed the last straw for the U.S. military establishment, which by some accounts facilitated a coup d'etat against sitting Ecuadorian President Rafael Correa in order to establish a government more conciliatory to the wishes of the United States establishment. This resulted in cutting off communications with Assange from the embassy to the rest of the world, as well as having imposed on him a constant state of surveillance, including confidential conversations between Assange, his lawyer, and his doctor. He was forcibly taken from the embassy in April 2019 by British authorities and placed in Belmarsh Prison, awaiting extradition to the U.S. under conditions described as torture by U.N. Representative Nils Melsner. Action for Assange represents a group of activists and journalists dedicated to raising awareness for the plight of Julian Assange, using his example as a warning to others about the chilling effect this case has on the many who support freedom of speech as a central tenet of a free society. Steve Poikinen and Taylor Hudak have been working together with Action for Assange to get the message out for over a year, producing the weekly video series Free Assange Vigil in order to spread the word. Take a look at the entire series on the Action for Assange YouTube channel, and please think about donating to the Free Assange Protest in Washington, D.C. GoFundMe account in support for the journalists and activists seeking to participate in political action as the Assange extradition trial resumes in September. Steve is the host and producer of his own weekly podcast, Slow News Day. Find more of his work at Slow News Day on YouTube and at Slow News Day Show on Twitter. Taylor Hudak currently works as a journalist for independent media outlet Activism Munich, where she dedicates her talents to reporting on the Assange case as well as shining a light on the stories of others who choose to expose the underhanded tactics of the corporate and government elite. Find her work at Activism Munich on YouTube, and she is also on Twitter at underscore Taylor Hudak. I am your host. My name is Doug McKenty. You can check out my weekly interview podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on YouTube and Facebook, and I am on Twitter at D McKenty. 
or take a look at my website, theshiftnow.com, for more information. As always, I would like to thank producer Rob Rubin for putting this all together. Find out more along with all other episodes of the Roundtable Discussions at TransparentMediaTruth.com or at TransparentMediaTruth on YouTube. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this Roundtable Discussion between myself, Steve Poikinen, and Taylor Hudak. Hey, everybody. Hello and welcome. This is the 11th Roundtable. I'm joined today by Steve Poikinen of the Slow News Day and Tyler Hudak of Activism Munich. We're talking about the action for Assange Network, uh, trying to build some political awareness about what's been going on with Julian Assange. Uh, I am your host. My name is Doug McKenty. So welcome, everybody, to the program. Um, why don't we just get started here real quick with uh, a qu- conversation about uh, what you guys are doing and how you got involved in this action for Assange. Taylor, you want to kick it in? Yeah, sure. I'll start. Um, thank you for that intro. And uh, Steve and I actually do know each other. Uh, we've been working together for about a year now. We just celebrated uh, Action for Assange's uh, one-year anniversary. It all started when uh, Andrew Smith, one of the uh, co-hosts on the Free Assange Vigils, uh, when he and I met each other. And uh, we decided to pick up where Unity 4J uh, left off, which was another uh, Julian Assange or free Julian Assange organization uh, to build unity and support for him. And uh, Andrew and I decided to pick it up. And then um, we brought Steve on and um, we've been holding these vigils uh, every week. I'm not on as frequently as I uh, once was because of some of my other work that I'm doing in my journalism, but I still cover the Assange case frequently. Um, Steve is still very active on the vigils and has his own show too. So I'll toss it over to him if he wants to describe uh, kind of what's going on with Action for Assange and the vigils. So back in February... Uh, we went to Washington, D.C. as Action for Assange and spent a week in D.C. uh, doing a series of demonstrations and events around uh, around the nation's capital and in front of the jail that was at the time housing Chelsea Manning and Jeremy Hammond. Chelsea Manning, of course, has been released. Jeremy Hammond was transferred to a minimum security county jail in Chickasaw, Oklahoma, which has got to just suck. (laughs) Uh, uh, But he should be out fairly soon. So there's some some good news, you know, uh, in this kind of web of shit that we're all uh, mired in throughout throughout living in a totalitarian state under the five eyes global information sharing network. Um, so since then, since February, uh, action for Assange has been putting together a series of many documentaries that we're calling teach-ins. They kind of are, we wanted to do these in person and uh, coronavirus happened. So I actually had a venue booked in Portland for uh, the last weekend in March. Uh, and, and I was going to go up there. Our graphics person, uh, Mean Panda, Kimber Maddox, was going to come down. All this, you know. Um, but that didn't happen. And, and so we decided to do them through video. Uh, the second one should be released this week. We're hoping to get in a few more before September because we're currently crowdfunding to go back to D.C. for all three weeks of the second phase of Julian's hearing, which we're no longer referring to as an extradition hearing, 
because he's an Australian citizen, not a U.S. citizen. So it's not extradition. It's extraordinary rendition, slow moving, broad daylight kidnapping that's taking place inside the courtroom at the Old Bailey. You want to tell people just uh, for a second about Slow News Day and what you got going on over there? Sure. Uh, the the show that I host by Malonesome is, is uh, like you said, called, called Slow News Day. And, uh, and all I'm really trying to do with it uh, at this point is bring on people who are way the hell smarter than me and ask them questions. Uh, and I've got, you know, I've got a lot of questions, uh, many, many more than I ever will answers. Uh, so, uh, I try to bring on people who are, uh, I guess speaking in a post-partisan voice who, who aren't playing like red team, blue team, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and we have a conversation about, uh, you know, much broader subjects than, kind of narrowing it down to just horse race politics or, uh, you know, team sports, that kind of shit. Yeah, it's a great show. I've been uh, enjoying checking it out as I've been Thank preparing you. for this. So, yeah, congratulations on that work. And, Taylor, you want to talk about uh, Activism Munich and the work you're doing there just a bit? Yeah, so um, I work for a, a nonprofit independent media organization, uh, obviously based in Munich, Germany. And I cover uh, Julian Assange's case. I also just recently uh, picked up with Craig Murray's case. And for anybody that's watching that's unfamiliar with uh, Craig Murray, he was the former UK ambassador to Uzbekistan turned whistleblower. Now he is a author, a journalist, a blogger, and um, he is in his own uh, press freedom case uh, right now, actually really free speech case. Um, so I'm covering that case as well. And uh, activists in Munich, like I said, uh, we're based in Germany and uh, we cover more than just uh, free press cases. That's my area of focus. We also cover um, all kinds of topics from U.S. politics to U.S. foreign policy, uh, domestic politics in uh, Germany and just all throughout the world. Uh, the election, interestingly, it's something that I don't cover that much, uh, but my uh, colleagues do. And we also started to pick up on some psychology and science based uh, content as well. And uh, I just have to say I'm really grateful to have that platform because it's a, a place where I can speak freely about uh, Julian's case and uh, really highlight his plight on a regular basis. Yeah, it's been great. I've um, been checking that out as well. Uh, like I said, to see just to prepare for this. And it uh, seems like you guys have access to a lot of people. I uh, saw a good interview with Chris Hedges. I saw that you've uh, you've interviewed, not you personally, but Glenn Greenwald. So a lot of different voices on there. And uh, also would recommend certainly that people go and check that out. Um, so we, you know, as independent journalists, I think, and, and maybe myself included, I mean, you know, just trying to do what I can do over the internet um, uh, without any corporate ties. But the case of Julian Assange is really important for all of us because, you know, anyone that's concerned with freedom of speech, uh, as we are, trying to get ideas out there that aren't covered by the corporate media, um, we're looking at this case and thinking, my God, you know, this could be any one of us. So um, it's important to really keep track of what's going on here. And, you know, when Rob, who produced, helped to produce this show, asked me to do this and host this episode, I thought, oh, you know, I'm pretty well versed on 
the whole Assange thing. I've been, I've been, uh, you know, obviously keeping track of it over the course of the last couple of years, but man, I haven't heard anything in, you know, like the last four or five months. I don't really know what's going on. I need to get, I need to get uh, current on the issue. And of course I start looking into it. And Taylor, one of the things that I noticed uh, right away was that you were describing a media blackout here in the United States, which may have something to do with why it hadn't come up on my newsfeed anytime recently. You want to kind of, uh, Touch on that and then touch on some of the things that have been changing in the last couple of months, really since February in terms of the case, because I know you were in London actually covering uh, the extradition trial as it was going on. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the media has largely ignored this case. You will see, and when I say media, I'm talking about the uh, corporate media in the United States. Uh, what you will see um, is if there is something that's that major happens. For example, when he was first uh, arrested, that of course was covered. That was a year ago. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was there actually covering the hearing back in February, I did not see any corporate media there besides CNN. They were there for one day. They were there uh, on Monday and that was in the morning. So they only actually had access to the prosecution side and then they left. They didn't even stay for the entire hearing. It was supposed to be five days. It only lasted four and uh, since then, we've seen e even another indictment uh, come out with no new charges uh, against Assange, but it just uh, brought in the scope of the already existing charge, which was conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. And uh, this is really just an attempt to sort of separate Assange's activities from that of a journalist and try to frame him as a hacker. The point being here, though, uh, Assange and any journalist, it is your duty to protect your sources and uh, make sure that they remain confidential. And so he, of course, had technical skills in which he could help his sources remain confidential. That's essentially what he was doing. This is something that journalists do all the time, especially investigative journalists. So uh, surprisingly, the media did not really even touch on this. I was called to speak about this with um, Sputnik, so Russian television was covering this, and independent media, of course. But beyond that, nobody was covering this at all. And I think Steve would uh, agree to that, that, you know, they tried to claim that Assange, or they are claiming that he was conspiring with uh, Anonymous. And they were actually depending, the FBI is depending on the testimony of a known FBI informant, Sabu, and also a child predator. The FBI was willing to work with a convicted child predator to, in order to broaden the scope of Assange's already existing charge. Well, let, let's be, let, let's put this in the proper historical context too, because the convicted pedophile that the FBI is heralding, the Department of Justice is heralding as their new star witness, uh, was also convicted of embezzling funds from WikiLeaks. He was an FBI informant way back in 2011. He was paid by the FBI to infiltrate WikiLeaks. The first time, now they brought him back, Sigurd Thordeson, Siggy, uh, this certified sociopath, because he's been certified as a sociopath by doctors in Iceland. This FBI rat, this paid informant from damn near 10 years ago. It is now being heralded as a, a credible witness 
by the Department of Justice, who, by the way, did not release the superseding indictment to either Julian's legal team or the judge in the case. They released it directly to the U.S. media, which is absolutely fascinating to me. It will not be used in court is what I'm getting at. Nothing in this superseding indictment is going to be used in court during uh, during the, the hearing that's coming up. Uh, rather, it was one of those poison pills that uh, the DOJ will throw out to the press wolves to give them something to chew on to further smear the character of Julian Assange. Yeah, I mean, we've seen so much of this character assassination going on, and I've actually been surprised at how effective it is. Steve, before we get into the meat of the matter, I want to give you a second to pitch. I know you're trying to raise a little bit of money to try to get to D.C., right, for this, the second, this is when the, the second part of the extradition hearing is happening in September, correct? But And that's yeah. going to be in London, but you want to go to D.C. for a protest there. So we, as it stands right now, Action for Assange is basically the only U.S.-based organization that is standing up for both Julian and trying to preserve investigative journalism as we know it. Mm -hmm. Uh, This, the precedent that would be set if Julian gets black bagged and delivered to a supermax prison is that any country, any country who uh, determines that a publishing outlet or a particular journalist has printed something embarrassing can be rounded up and thrown into prison in their country. That's what that means. So uh, we're concerned about that. <laughs> we're very <Right>. concerned <laughs> about that. And uh, yeah, the, the hearing is scheduled to last for three weeks. So we are working with uh, a handful of other organizations to be that U.S. presence that says, hell no, this is not something that we want. This is not something that anybody wants. It's just the, the information is so trampled upon and, and kept within these algorithmic censor bubbles that it's hard to really talk to a larger audience so we're taking it directly to the the streets uh, as it were and we can't think of a better place to do it than dc um so we are we're crowdfunding for that we have a gofundme up we're uh we're about 40 percent uh of where we need to be um and, and it's uh, it looks like a kind of a high dollar amount, but again, we're trying to be there for three weeks, and over half of what uh, what we're trying to raise, all that covers is lodging. Like, no, you know, we we might sure. want to eat once or twice while we're there too. Uh, <laughs> helps a little bit. I, uh, I I'm walking around on a broken leg for like 14 years, so uh, marching is not necessarily my favorite activity. Uh, and it does work up a little bit of a hunger. It does. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate your work and I hope you, you know, can at least pick up a couple of bucks from, uh, from this interview here. We'll try to get it out to as many people as we can. It's, um, it's just flabbergast me that more people aren't, aren't taking this really to heart. In fact, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just amazed these days at how few people care about freedom at all a- anymore. It's with the coronavirus thing that's been going on and, uh, 
these freedom of speech issues just being right in your face. Uh, it's just phenomenal to me that more and more people aren't waking up to how dangerous things are becoming in this political climate. Um, and even when they are, it turns into a left-right issue. And it just depends on what specific thing. It's almost been frustrating for me to watch people on the left get all upset uh, about what's going on in Portland with the feds coming in and arresting people off the street. And now they're calling for constitutional rights. It's like, well, I, you know, I've been trying, we've been talking about constitutional rights for years. We no, nobody cares. You. Yeah, right. <laughs> we told you and you went, uh, no, we're, we're worried about this right now. We need to get Bernie Sanders elected. Right. Or we need, you know, we need to do this first. And no, man, you can't have a conversation about policy unless you understand the way that the world operates. And the only way you can do that is by having real access to primary source material. Yeah. Yeah. And people so easily forget that freedom of speech means the people that disagree with you also get to speak. <laughs> you know, like you can't, uh, I don't know. It, right now, it's amazing. right now on Twitter, there are the authoritarian left is fucking doing a little happy dance because thousands of Twitter accounts that had QAnon in their handle or were using QAnon hashtags have been purged. And these idiots don't see that they're next. Right. Yeah. It, go ahead. No, you're exactly right. They don't realize that uh, when free speech and uh, freedom of thought and expression, if it's taken, um, away from one group, it absolutely can be taken uh, away from you as well. Right. Uh, it's ridiculous. The left in America is really not even leftist. Um, I hate to bring up this up because this debate with the, I just want to get it out there though, this debate with the whole mass thing is so ridiculous as well because here we have, and I was talking to Steve about this um, earlier, and it's so ridiculous to me how people are actively advocating for their rights and their bodily autonomy to be taken away by the state. And they are welcoming this in. They're mad because governors are not telling them they need to be covering their face in public. Now, the only good thing about this is maybe it really does throw off with the facial recognition uh, technology that they're trying to roll out. But beyond that, it's really disturbing to see people urging for vaccines and urging for uh, masks because this is just going to increase. I see this as sort of a test of how far of the powerful seeing how far uh, the people will go and how obedient they will be. And eventually it's going to get really, really ugly. And with the way it's going, there's no pushback. And the people who remain silent and who go along with this are just as guilty as those implementing these very uh, authoritarian measures. When I say authoritarian, I mean, it's just very, um, inappropriate for government, I think, to tell people what they should be wearing in order so to prevent- I, I've given this a lot of thought. I've yeah. given this a lot of thought because as soon as I heard about mass mandates too, I was like, well, fuck, it beats facial recognition. Uh, <laughs> but as we're, we're learning just in the last like 24 to 48 hours, uh, the pre-crime division of the Department of Justice that began on January 1st of this year, that like nobody- covered as soon as uh attorney general Barr announced it last freaking summer except me i covered it there's slow news day episodes about it. i had whitney webb on yeah, to come and absolutely. talk about it yeah this is um, serious 
but but the 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 director of the Department of Homeland Security flat out said we are using this pre-crime program to round up protesters, not just in Portland, but anywhere the DHS has been employed. So that's how they go around the fact that masks help skew facial recognition. They just Im- implement pre-crime. If you've got a post, if you've got a tweet on social media, if you've got communications, private communications on your email about dissenting views against the government, that will get you put in this like pre-crime machine that will determine whether or not you may in the future commit some sort of act that goes against whatever government mandate there is at the time. Right. Yeah, I just got done with an interview, actually, with a guy by the name of John Whitehead, who wrote a book, uh, Battlefield America. He runs the Rutherford Institute. He's been fighting the militarization of the police for the last 10 years, just telling people, please, you know, like we can see this happening. This is a military rollout of our police forces. He's written articles about the pre-crime thing as well. And just like what we're talking about, he's just astounded that the idea of living in a free society, just like you were talking about, Taylor, having bodily autonomy. I wanted to add to to your comments, you know, there's a reason why informed consent was put in the Nuremberg Code. Like, this isn't a joke. You know, this is why when people were fighting the Nazis, it was because they were doing medical experiments on people without their consent. I mean, this is a major, you know, a major breach. And those Nazis got it from the Tuskegee experiments. Sure, sure. The Nazis... were using U.S.-based eugenicist thought when they started implementing all of these programs. It's a, a very small circle of blood-sucking sociopathic pedophiles that we have <laughs> ruling over us for the last, like, you know, almost 100 years. And yes, the appropriate response to that is to laugh out loud. It is. <laughs> and mean, not because I'm joking, but because that's the only sane reaction. Yeah, you right. Know, you right. Can, you know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I want to I wanna kind of keep on track of, though. I mean, I know we're having a larger meta discussion about rights and freedoms in general, which is important. But getting, getting back to Julian Assange, um, Taylor, one of the things that you have said in your interviews and the work that you've been doing is discussing how, in order to prosecute Assange, the U.S. government has been using the Espionage Act. And then they've been, they've been arguing that this can be extrapolated internationally because of course Julian is an Australian citizen and shouldn't be under the jurisdiction of these American laws but then conversely the first amendment does not apply to international citizens so they can go after Julian without having to worry about freedom of speech protections do you want to speak to that right that is the uh, latest interpretation uh, by a court now i actually had a chance to ask two of assange's attorneys what their perspectives were on this i kind of knew of course what their perspectives were going to be that they very much disagreed with this but i wanted them to explain um and they believe that that is a completely uh faulty interpretation that the espionage act of 1917 can be used against a foreign national. Many people who are not familiar with this case automatically assume that Assange is an American citizen Mm. in the UK right now, but he is an Australian citizen and uh, he does not, according to this court and this latest interpretation, you're right, he 
uh, does not is not protected by the First Amendment. It does not apply uh, in this case. That's what they're arguing. But the Espionage Act of 1917 does. And this is also the first time that the Espionage Act has been used against a publisher for uh, journalism, for publishing government material. And there's a pretty uh, hefty price to pay here of 175 years in prison if he is extradited um, to the United States. So it's, it's really, really important that that does not happen. And um, it seems that all rule of law here has been purposefully uh, disregarded. If you even look at the judges in this case, uh, one of them failed to recuse herself when she had very uh, close ties or very, uh, I want to say she had a a serious conflict of interest. Uh, Her husband was implicated in WikiLeaks documents. Her son worked for an anti-data leaking company. Uh, She did eventually... um, She was somewhat taken off the case, but ultimately maintains control over the current judge, which is Judge Vanessa Bracer, who has been very much in favor of uh, the prosecution. People who have been present in the courtroom have spoken to this and said that it was very clear that she was taking her cues uh, from the prosecution who were themselves actually taking their cues from U.S. officials who were present in the courtroom. It's extremely inappropriate what's happening. He also shouldn't even be in prison right now. He is in Belmarsh Prison, which is the worst prison in England and in, in the U.K., I believe. Mm-hmm. He is there right now, and he's being held on remand, which means he's being held without charge. And uh, he had, was given a 50-week sentence for breaching bail, which was a very excessive sentence. But that has already been served, and he's still there right now. So just many, many uh, abuses of power in this case. It does concern me uh, for the future and for this upcoming second half of the extradition hearing. Their reasoning for keeping him in prison on remand is, well, we haven't charged him with anything, so how could we let him out? <laughs> I'm That's real shit right there that's that's an official statement from the governor uh, of uh of belmarsh this real-time prequel to v for vendetta that we're all living in right now is just it's i tell people on my show a lot that we live in a fucking cartoon and and every day something happens that bears that out and it makes me just want to slam my head against the fucking wall dog right. it really does man <laughs> oh it's so frustrating yeah i hear you steve i mean it's i i don't even know what to say the critical thinking that's not happening and the the spoon feeding of information from the corporate media where people are just sucking it up and not you know not doing the research for themselves because yeah. i think the hypocrisy and the corruption from what's going on on these on the upper levels uh, of the government and the corporatocracy here is, is so flagrant these days. And yet people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to see what's happening. And what's happening to Julian Assange is just, you know, it's like the tip of the iceberg uh, of this major power play by the powers that be. That's why it's, you know, I know it's why it's so important to the two of you. Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit more about the. Um, the action for Assange movement and then describe the vigils for Assange that you guys put on. Uh, so people can, if they're listening and want to find out more information can go and find that out there. Uh, and then we'll just kind of really get into the, the heart of what's been happening to Julian over the last 10 years, really. It's been such a long time now. It's a huge story. For sure. Steve, you could pick up on <laughs> after Assange initiatives. 
so uh so the way that the vigils work normally uh is that we will we will try to bring in uh, a couple of guests who uh, I guess have a specific area of focus or a a, a special skill set uh, mm-hmm. that they have applied to this movement to bring awareness to to the persecution uh, of Julian Assange. Um, we've had people from veterans intelli- veteran intelligence professionals for sanity on a, a number of times now uh ray mcgovern it's great when ray mcgovern yeah. <laughs> was on those guys show. are so cool man i mean they do oh. incredible work uh and yeah. uh for our for our year our one year anniversary of these and by the way we've done these every week this we're we're in our 55th consecutive week uh, uh of doing this and there's always news there is always something that that comes up in the course of like anywhere from four to seven days that we're like oh shit didn't know that we got to cover that you know uh and, and we've included information about what's happening to craig murray um i believe we were the first media outlet at, at all to um to highlight what was happening to him Activi- activism munich has done a wonderful job of doing that uh, but again, it's like, that's it. It's, it's us, you know, who are screaming from the rooftops about it. Um, we, uh, yeah, we have the teach-ins that, that we're producing. Um, we finally got ourselves a social media team. I'm sorry, UPS just pulled up in front of my house. So if it gets loud as fuck, that's why. I shoot <laughs> right. outdoors, sort of. Uh, I've been like a screen porch. Um, so I can't, I can't really shut out what what goes on but i do live in no the worries. middle of nowhere so like that's gonna be the only interruption that we have um trying to trying to to trying to pitch the video we suck at promoting doug i i i want to make that perfectly it's, clear we it's are actually, not marketing geniuses right. it's, a, it's a tough part of the gig i mean we, i'm right there we're not it. Branding individuals, yeah, uh, but we have incredible guests on who uh, who are just I don't know, either experts in their field or complete wizards of journalism or video editing. Uh, it's a uh, it's a really good time. You should you should definitely check them out. They're on Tuesdays at nine p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at one p.m. Eastern. Uh, and we will occasionally do something during the week if there's, uh, you know, an earth shattering story mm-hmm. or a celebratory event, um, we'll, we'll bust in for those. It really is amazing. Uh, Steve is right when he says that literally every four to seven days, there is something to talk about. There is something new, either directly related to Assange's case. It's happening to him or uh, something very, very related. And uh, at least in the realm of free speech and free press. Yo, uh, and that's what, I'm yeah. sorry to run all over you, sis. I am, dude. But like, that's <laughs> what pisses me off yeah. about... Yeah. Uh, independent media specifically because they're going to get us first. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And with something happening at least weekly, if not a few times a week regarding this case for a, a, 
you know, a content creator that that fancies themselves a part of this independent media to ignore it entirely or to shy away from it because they're more concerned about that AdSense account than they are about their ability to broadcast in the future is, um, man, it's, it's like we have trained our content creators so well to react only to the the flow of their cash or those clicks on their videos sure that their content then becomes uh a a casualty of the way that we have chosen to monetize thought you know what i mean yeah it's a big problem it seems that there's a lot of coverage about uh you know, electoral politics that seems to really dominate independent media, which is strange because it's God, independent really media. It's supposed is. to be the That's place where, where yeah, it's supposed to be the place where you could talk about other issues like Julian Assange's case, like Craig Murray and other complex things. Now, Steve, mm-hmm. you've made a good point that oftentimes they'll deviate from electoral politics to talk about the Epstein case. But that, of course, generates lots of uh, likes, views, and mm-hmm. uh, there's something to be gained from covering that as well. But there needs to be more of a focus on some more substantive issues. And unfortunately, I've seen uh, Many people still make uh, some really big mistakes when it comes to the reporting on Assange's case. Again, the point being that this is an outlet or this is a supposed to be a platform where you can actually talk about things that the corporate media won't cover. And um, it seems that it's not so much happening beyond there are some uh, some individuals who do a good job. Uh, of talking about the issues, but for the majority of the time, I believe it's very uh, Biden, Hillary. Can we talk about the format stuff. real quick? I know that yeah. this is a deviation from from the subject. Of yeah, the no, day. let's let's do it. This is important for sure. So the the format seems to be, I'm going to use, and I'm I'm just not not that I do, but the, let's let's say I'm a content creator that, for example, does seven videos about Elizabeth Warren in a day. Okay. Um, so what you do is is you use mainstream media as the baseline material for your content and you you know maybe wag your finger at mainstream media but you are not using you're not bringing in independent journalists who have also covered this material what what you do is you you know you you kind of curate your audience to respond to what mainstream media does. It's a reaction to what mainstream media does. You totally, want to figure at it. Yeah. And then um, you train your audience to only respond to political discussions that mainstream media set up. And, you know, yeah, you wag your finger at them, but that's fucking it. And then any content that doesn't have to do specifically with the horse race or, as Taylor said, Epstein, they tune out. They are incapable of of processing anything outside of that. And it fucking sucks. I've noticed this too, Steve, that um, as long as we're reacting to the mainstream narrative, then they're still controlling the narrative. 100%. got to get away from talking. And I, this is reminding me because I had the opportunity to uh, watch some of your interviews with Whitney Webb. 
and you were asking her, are you getting a lot of calls for interviews? She says, well, I get all the calls in the world for Epstein, but not about my dark winter series because that's about coronavirus. My God, we're not talking about coronavirus. No one in the mainstream narrative is talking about coronavirus. They'll let us talk about Epstein. So we'll talk about Epstein. It's like, that's really telling, especially since her work on that was brilliant. Just absolutely amazing. The connections that she was making between what's happening with the rollout of the, of the coronavirus uh, you know, this whole pandemic response to these these plans and these games that were being played out in 2001, going all the way back to right before the anthrax attacks. You know? Yeah. And, and she said uh, on my show I, back in March, I think that she felt like from her Epstein series through her Dark Winter series, exploring all of these new AI technologies that are coming out the way that that uh, the Gates Foundation is operating in this, each article and each series of articles that she had done, she said it felt like she was covering the exact same story, you know, looking right. back on it with, with some distance and a little bit more perspective, but from different angles. And she's absolutely right. There's no separating what uh, what the Epstein thing is about from what is happening with these simulated events, with what is happening with the rollout of the post-pandemic police state, and how technology is being abused. Yeah. And, and we are being abused as a result of this technology. It's all connected. And if people are, I, I would like the people that are listening right now, if you only take away one thing from this, Please go read Whitney's work in total. Don't focus on one specific avenue because it's all related. And the best way to do that is to watch Slow News Day and the interviews that I've done with her on these many, many subjects. <laughs> totally. Told you I sucked at marketing. I almost forgot that bit. I did. I was, well, I, at least I tried to get the plug in for uh, for going to D.C., you know, <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, I can I, I've I hate asking people for money, man. It sure. sucks, dude. It's one of the most like, like just dick punch aspects of this whole thing is that we're, you know, not independently wealthy and can't finance a, a fucking trip on our own. We've got to ask the audience and the audience has stepped up incredibly I will I will say this, man, the, the people who are active in the chat on my channel and on Action for Assange, it's just like a giant cuddle puddle. And, and it's a, I like every, the people are engaged. And when they stray off from what we're talking about and do their own thing, it's to like build each other up and support each other. It's mm -hmm. you know, an anomaly. It's an anomaly in social media, in my experience. Sure. Well, Taylor, what's your experience uh, in terms of corporate media controlling the narrative? And I just, you know, I want to bring up for the audience, I know you went to journalism school. So like having been in that academic environment as well, I, one of the things that I heard in one of your interviews discussing when you were in school, it was amazing how many of your teachers uh, really ended up with a negative attitude about Julian Assange. I mean, why, why is this? What do you see as going on? And about on? me too. Oh yeah. <laughs> <And about> me. <laughs> right. I was not well liked by them. Um, I feel like I could talk about this freely because uh, I'm about there uh, to get my uh, degree passed and, and finalized and everything. So mm -hmm. 
Um, I feel a little bit more free to talk about it. Um, yeah, I mean, the schools are uh, very neoliberal. They do not view Assange as um, a journalist. And um, when I tried to uh, speak about this issue, they shut it down. When I tried to do my like final thesis on uh, WikiLeaks and about WikiLeaks publications, that was very much rejected. And so, yeah, it was really wow. difficult, but I would advise anybody don't, you don't need to go to journalism school to be a journalist by any means. In fact, good journalists usually don't go to journalism school because really what they're manufacturing are little minions for the establishment, for the corporations and uh, for the powerful. The majority of people um, that you see come out of uh, these institutions go on to just be mouthpieces for the establishment. And mm. I wasn't going to do that. Uh, I had a little bit more of a naive perspective going into it, but I learned very quickly that uh, this is not, you know, universities are not the place for uh, free thought, free speech, and for honest journalism. Yeah. So, it's sad. But to it's, say. Yeah. But now, um, again, there are some news organizations that will talk about some that we'll talk about Assange's case that aren't independent, like, you know, RT, um, it is Russian television. However, yeah. at the same time, um, they don't hide that. They don't try to act as if they're not, uh, affiliated with Russia. The difference with the American corporate media is that they pretend to be independent and impartial when in reality, they're not at all. So that's a huge difference. And honestly, it's been, I've been able to talk about, uh, Assange's case freely and openly on Sputnik and on RT. They seem to be the only outlet. I'm going to forget some right now. Whatever you name organizations, you always will leave some out. So I'm kind of hesitant to do so. But those two in particular um, have been pretty good with covering, well, have been very good with covering Assange's case, in fact. Sure. And then they always get hammered with, oh, it's just Russian propaganda, which yeah. doesn't mean that it's not true you know like well what about the facts right. you know? Here, here's so here's what they're doing though they're just they're the host they're the platform and mm -hmm. that's putting this content out like for example uh sputnik has a an rt has a, a dc based office studio now right the people who are producing that in real time are Americans. The people who are hosting the show in real time are Americans. And Russian state television isn't, you know, they're not controlling what's being said or who's saying it or, or who's hearing it. Yeah. They're just, you know, the host network for these programs. Uh, the, the people who, you know, the people who are involved in real time on the ground remain in creative control of their content unlike u.s state television where right. uh you know it's it's the government and advertisers who are dictating what the content is well it is so funny i interviewed abby martin years ago before she was even on rt uh and then when she went on to do breaking the set which to my mind was probably one of the more hard-hitting uh, news programs that was on cable television. Some of the some of her guests, you know, would never be on any other corporate <laughs> corporate outlet for sure. Um, and then people are coming out. I mean, at, that show was actually what was it? Um, 
when the intelligence agencies came out with the whole Russiagate scandal and they were trying to say that she, they actually picked her show by name and said, you know, this is proof of, of Russian propaganda in the United States. And it's like, I know she's not a Russian agent, you know, like, what are you, she's just an American who's doing some independent journalism who happens to, you know, be, be allowed the platform at RT. But I mean, you know, you could say the same thing about Lee Camp or, or Chris Hedges, just like you're talking about. These people have, are given a platform, but then they're allowed independence. And you don't see that uh, in the American media. One of the things I want to ask you, Taylor, because I've been, this is funny. I've been, I've been, I've spent way too much time comparing and contrasting like corporate media with independent media, because I'm like, how can they, you know, why is this on CNN? Is this true? And then, you know, maybe something else is on Infowars or whatever, you know, something. And you're like, is it what's going on? And so I'm constantly looking at the sources and double checking. <laughs> and I've, I mean, recently it's been hilarious. It's like, I'll read some corporate news sources and I swear to God, if I read the source material, like they might, you know, link to two or three different articles and I'll link those articles. And the narrative that I get from the source material is not what the journalists wrote. I mean, you know, there might be a sentence or two somewhere in the source that maybe backs the narrative, but I'm getting the impression. And I wonder, cause you may have more experience with this. I mean, the people, their boss is coming to them and saying, we want you to write, you know, 2000 words and this is your narrative now go and they have to go and they have to find the source material that's going to at least try to back the narrative that their boss wants them to do i mean isn't this how it works it's not like they're truth seekers you know this is the because when people especially when i'm trying to talk to people about conspiracy theory let's say and they're just like well this is just crazy because there's no way that every journalist in America is part of some grand conspiracy. You know, it's the same thing. Every doctor doesn't work for big pharma. They care. Journalists care about finding the truth. Right. But then you read it and these corporate narratives consistently miss the mark um, based on the facts at hand. And yet these journalists keep pumping it out. So, I mean, why do you think that is what's going on? Is it just, they're afraid to lose their jobs. It's this, you know, hierarchical system. The boss tells them what to write. Yeah, I definitely think that there's a lot of self self censorship going on. I think they know it's ex what is expected of them, and uh, I think that probably how it works is that they put together a piece, they put together a package, which is like a a video uh, news segment, or they write their story and then it goes off to an editor, who will then kind of clean some things up and they could pretty much change uh, whatever they want. Now they shouldn't be changing it completely where the story is totally different. But I think mm. that the main point here is that they know it's expected of them and they know that there's going to be backlash from not only the people that are above them, like their news directors and their editors, but also their own colleagues as well. Uh, I think that that is what's happening. If they were to go ahead and speak out in favor of Assange, I uh, can I think they, and this is not to put any pressure off of them or to say what they're doing is okay because it's not at all. Mm -hmm. But I think that that pressure of kind of not fitting in with the group or potentially losing their job or being demoted is a reason why they self-censor, which is not an excuse, by the way. Uh, there are other routes you can go. You can uh, become part of independent media. It's a little bit more difficult, right. sure. But if you want to maintain your integrity, um, that's how you do it. Now, some people I think are just very oblivious to what's going on and they think that they have all of the answers and they think that this, uh, perspective that's being, uh, forced upon them is the truth and is something that they truly believe. And I do believe that there are people that, 
uh, are 100% uh, believing in what they're putting forth, but those aren't really good journalists. They're not <laughs> journalists at all. Right. Like, well, you know, I, I can I, I can speak to this a little bit, too, uh, mm-hmm. just because I, I've talked to a handful uh, of uh, mainstream journalists and I've uh, spent a lot of time talking to Tara Haddad, who worked for Newsweek for years and years and years. Right. And tried to bring awareness about Julian Assange into his reporting and was fucking fired for uh or no i'm sorry he he resigned in protest yeah uh but being fired was threatened because he was trying to expose the opcw's role in covering up the false flag attack in duma and that's when he butted heads and parted ways with newsweek was because the people directly above him were shutting down legitimate reporting on this that story Real, real quick, though, when we were in D.C., uh, the Tuesday that we were there, we uh, did demonstrations outside of mainstream media outlets. Uh, one of them was the building that housed uh, The Hill and Politico and a couple of We got lied to by Crystal Ball on the street in Washington, D.C. Fucking got shucked and jived by Crystal Ball. But while we were there, there was a guy who came out and he was like, hey, um, there aren't any cameras on me, are there? You know, and we were like, no, no, man, we're, we're not, we're, you know, we're not, we're not filming this right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was like, look, I, I just want you to know that I support what you're doing a hundred percent. And he was like real clandestine about it. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, there's, there's some of us that, you know, are, are just horrified by what's going to happen to us when they get away with it. This was a foregone court conclusion. Yeah, that, uh, that the precedent would be set, that Assange would be black bagged and dragged to a supermax. Uh, and, and he goes, I just want you to know that uh, I would love to be able to, to, you know, participate in these with you, but I'll lose my job. Huh. And, and that's it. That's like flat out it. People are too afraid to speak their minds because their livelihood is yeah. at stake. Now, I know how much money it costs to live in Washington, D.C., because I live in California. And, you know, I know what my rent is. I know how much I pay for a gallon of milk. It's basically the same in D.C. It's actually a little bit cheaper in D.C. Um, so I know what what's on the line for those people. And, like, I, I'm not trying to forgive their culpability in this because they are accountable right for what happens to julian assange everyone in the press is accountable for what happens to julian assange everyone and what side of that you're on determines i the content of your character uh what i'm saying is it's an effective threat but this is all a fear-based response it's just amazing, actually, you know, we're trying to live the American dream here and how expensive it is if you don't have a corporate job, because the corporate job's going to give you health care. You know, the corporate job can pay you enough that you have a nice car that you can save up and maybe buy a home that you can save money for your kid to go to college. And so, you know, maybe you're making a six figure salary at CNN or whatever. 
And if you had to, you know, you can't live without that. Once you're on that track, I mean, the pressure to not speak is so powerful. And they just know, I mean, I, I probably, I mean, I just, just, just to tell my own story for a second, I, you know, I got my start on local radio here in Mendocino County, like a rural community radio station that was an NPR station, but also let, I used to do Wait, a station? Show, KZYX. Did you guys host uh, uh, Travis T. Hips content? I don't think so. Not, not when no, I... that was, I'm sorry. That was yeah. Ferndale. My bad. Right on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, Love that guy. I mean, the fact is that, you know, the bulk of the people that were around were part of the NPR crowd. And there was a small segment of us that were more into the, you know, the community radio station where anybody could show up, and produce their own show. And we had freedom of speech or whatever. But there was no question that we all had to self-censor. We knew that if we strayed too far from the NPR narrative, then we were going to lose our shows. And we didn't even have anything on the line. Like we didn't, you know, like I wasn't making any money. It was a volunteer thing. And it's just amazing to understand like what this, you know, now they're calling it cancel culture, but it's really happening, right? I mean, it's really happening that if you're involved in a, you know, in an industry, it really doesn't matter what industry it is. If you stray too far outside of the corporate government line, you know, your job's in jeopardy. And then you're out there in the world you know, doing what we're doing, being independent. And it's a struggle. You know, there's no question. You've got to do your own marketing, right, Steve? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to lose that race. Yeah. I, I am. I'm, I'm going to be like a one-legged pudgy kid in a marathon. It, <laughs> it's not, not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. It's, it's rough. Well, I mean, let's get back to um, focusing on Assange. I mean, I think we can all see why this case is so important, especially to those of us that are trying to get the word out in in an independent venue. Um, Because what we're seeing with Julian here is if he goes down, you know, we're all next. So, (laughs) and I mean, God, the way things are, we probably are already. uh, We kind of mentioned it before, but all three of us may well be on a list Um, you know, John Whitehead was just telling me this morning that cops already have basically the access to the social credit system like they're using in China. If they come to your door, they know, you know, they're tracking us in social media. They know where we're at, where we stand politically. Uh, and so right away, you know, you're already on the list. Um, you know, if you're not participating in that, in that, in that corporate government, uh, allowable Overton window that you can speak within, um, so it's crazy, and we're watching this closely. And so I just kind of, it's such a long story that I want to get a little bit into the history of it. It seems like the first thing, well, one of the things that I've noticed, I guess I wanted to talk about was basically we know that, you know, WikiLeaks was going on, it was going strong. Most people, especially if they identified as left wing, were probably really pro Assange 2009, 2010. But when Chelsea Manning came out and the collateral damage video came out and really hit the American military, you know, pretty hard, that's when you could see this change happening. And that's when the character assassination starts to happen. So, you know, maybe we've touched on it a bit, but maybe we can get a little bit more into the character assassination. Of course, then you have the whole thing in Sweden. And after that, I, I think most people in the United States or many people in the United States suddenly Assange is this terrible person. And he should be thrown in jail and they should throw away the key. Um, so, Taylor, do you want to speak to this? Like, 
you know, as WikiLeaks is moving forward and then we see these character assassination, you know, just all over the mainstream, like, again, when does the mainstream media cover Julian Assange? They cover him when, you know, when there's, there seems to be some, uh, some kind of, um, you know, backhanded um, attempt at, at this character assassination that's been going on. Yeah, so I would say that um, at the time that the uh, collateral murder video was released and that entire publication as a whole, uh, it really was obviously not a good look for uh, George Bush and for the American military by any means. I would say that perhaps those on the left or the Democrats probably favored Assange because of that leak. I think he had a lot of support from those on the left. Right. You see that kind of switch. Well, not kind of switch, but you definitely see that really change when these um, propped up or I, I want to say made it because they really were made up, made up uh, rape allegations. And then that was spun in the media and they falsely reported that he was charged. He was never charged in Sweden. So then he lost a lot of support on the left because of these um, allegations, which were really uh, put forth by the police. Steve, you could touch on that a little bit better because I think you're a little bit more knowledgeable on how that all happened. Yeah. But uh, just real quick, though, um, then we saw a shift again when um, the, the DNC uh, mm -hmm. leaks came out and then everybody on the left uh, started to feel that he was working for the Russian government or that WikiLeaks was working on behalf of the Russians and that he helped get Donald Trump elected, which is ridiculous. And so then he was hated even more by those uh, on the left and viewed as some uh, right winger. It's totally ridiculous. Assange himself said that uh, if there was uh, material to publish on Trump, he absolutely would have. Sure. Now, if you type in Trump in, uh, or type in Donald Trump in the WikiLeaks search en engine on the website, you're going to find some very not flattering information. If you type in Russia, you're going to find some very not flattering information. Right. So there's been a very effective uh, disinformation and smear campaign. Also, too, the, this uh, smear campaign, um, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Niels Melzer, found that, in fact, uh, that is psychological torture and his confinement in the embassy for uh, around seven years uh, was torture. And that has been formally reported on. And the UK government just kind of said, well, we don't agree with you and we're not going to do anything about it. And they are obligated to, in fact, conduct an impartial investigation into this alleged torture and uh, Niels Melzer, who was actually someone, this is so fascinating, Niels Melzer, again, this is a UN special rapporteur on torture. Mm -hmm. He at first was not even a supporter of Assange. He was uh, providing evidence of his case and it was on, he said it was on his uh, desk and he kind of pushed it aside because he thought, I don't want to uh, represent or investigate this uh, rapist, this manipulator, this uh, horrible person. And he just started to scratch the surface a little bit at first. He said, okay, let me just look into this. And he realized very, very quickly that he was completely duped by the media and that there was mass deception in the media about Assange. And he wow. was, a, he was a, a victim of that himself. Um, I guess I shouldn't use the word victim, but he succumbed no, to victims that. No, victims, that's, that's the right <laughs> word. Yeah, right. I mean, no, this is, psych this is psychological yeah. abuse that's taking place on it, the part of the media. It is a form of abuse. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say it was amazing because uh, Neil Smelser, somebody, again, who didn't support Assange, just looked into the evidence just a little bit, scratched the surface and realized that he was being uh, lied to and manipulated. So it's never, ever too late to uh, be on the right side of history when it comes to this case. Many people who, well, maybe not many, but people who support Assange now, maybe at one time didn't hold the best views about him, maybe at one time believed some very false information about him, but it's never too late. If you do look at this information, uh, you will see that the media has been lying to you and you've been deceived. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I heard you say uh, in a previous interview was that because of this investigation, this torture investigation, Assange is basically a political prisoner. If the UK were to ask to join the United Nations right now, they would not be allowed in because they're holding a political prisoner. Is that right? Um, I actually am releasing a a video all about his uh, torture, and that is going to be coming out uh, later this week. Um, The UN, uh, well, actually, upon upon my research, I realized that you, if I'm remembering correctly, Uh you do not have to be a a part of the UN. Um, If you are investigated for torture, if a government is investigated for torture, I believe you still have to adhere to some of those standards for things like torture and cruel and unusual punishment. I could be wrong, but it's something uh, like that. The point being here is that what is happening is that the UK, the US, Sweden, and Ecuador are all complicit in violating international human rights law by being complicit, contributing to, and assisting in the torture of another human being, being Julian Assange. Right. I mean, it's just so strange, the assumption everyone makes that, well, no, these are democratic countries. These are free countries. They don't engage in things like that. And yeah, this is what we're seeing, right? They're really not. That's what's amazing about this. We are not living in uh, democracies. We have so-called democracies. And Nils Melzer also made the point to say that if we were living in healthy democracies, the UK and Sweden and Ecuador and the US would have responded appropriately to the letters he sent to them because he sent letters to all four governments. They would have responded appropriately and investigated this and would have ensured that there was some compensation for Assange's torture, and there would be measures taken to ensure that this does not happen again. And he's still being tortured right now in Belmarsh Prison and uh, being in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day and uh, treated very, very poorly. We saw that especially during the first half of the extradition hearing. It was just uh, very clear that they want to mentally break down this person. So, Steve, you want to talk about the rape allegations then? Sure. Uh, I I want to recommend the the uh, interview that Nils Melzer gave to the magazine Republic. That's Republic with a K. Uh, that's where the the bulk of our information, unfortunately, uh, about this whole debacle in Sweden comes from. Uh, there's been there there have been some outlets that looked into it at the time, but most of those stories have been scrubbed from the internet. Most of that reporting has been entirely scrubbed. So we've got this interview with Nils Melzer, and uh, and he he's one of the good things about it is that he speaks fluent Swedish. So when he was able to access the original police reports and these emails that were going back and forth between uh, the the Swedish police and the UK. 
uh, it, I think it's the Met is what the the uh, bureaucracy is called. And by the way, at the time, the chief prosecutor for the Met was now labor leader Keir Starmer. Hmm. Um, just sort of bringing this all full circle. Uh, they, they drubbed out Corbin, who was too much of a pussy to stand up for Julian Assange until it was way too late. And now they've got Keir Starmer in there who uh, was leading this sort of, uh, you know, cloak and dagger kind of character assassination campaign against Julian. So what happened was uh, Julian had been invited to speak at a conference. He had arranged to uh, stay at the house of this woman. Uh, While he was there, they ended up having sex. She went to the police because uh, I think originally because he took a condom off something like that yeah. while they were having sex, which, which can be a, a, an offense there in Sweden. Um, so what happened when she left and gave this original statement saying, no, this was not rape. Want to make that perfectly clear. I didn't get raped. Uh, she left and the Swedish police went, okay, so we're going to file a rape allegation here. And, uh, <laughs> right. um, a, a friend of hers came in with another story. This story through recovered text messages has been proven to be false. Uh, so the Swedish police within hours of meeting with these two women release the entire detail of their interviews with the Swedish police's own spin to a, a, I think it was at the time, the largest newspaper in Sweden, Julian Assange held on rape allegations or rape and, you know, shit like that. Uh, It absolutely blew up. Um, We know from the strap for hack in the global intelligence files that there were plans already being laid to honeypot Julian Assange. To sure. There's a, a quote in one of those emails that says, uh, like, keep him in court for 25 years. Wow. Uh, I didn't know that. That's so uh, drop my lighter. Um, so uh, the the not investigation, because that's not the right word. The. Um, Mm, I don't know. I don't really know how to phrase this. The, the, You're always good at putting a spin on these particular. The, the way that the Swedish police were were conducting their, uh, I, I guess, smear campaign is really the easiest way to put it. This is the lazy way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that they were under orders from the UK from the Met to keep pursuing the, this, this case without ever filing charges. They wanted to keep him in a legal limbo for as long as humanly possible so that he would not have his day in court because they knew they had the original interviews. They knew that this case would fall apart on its face if it ever saw the light of day. There's an email from British prosecutors saying, don't get cold feet because the the Swedish police had dropped the investigation. 
mm-hmm. right, without filing a charge. And so they reopened the investigation without filing charges, making sure that he was in a legal limbo. While this was going on, um, Julian had applied for asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in, in London, not because he was running from rape charges like so many media outlets falsely reported at the time, right. but because his lawyers had convinced the Ecuadorian government through uh, a, a just massive trove of documentation that Julian Assange was a politically persecuted individual and being targeted by hostile state powers like the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, you don't get asylum in a foreign country if you're trying to duck a rape charge. That's not how that process works. Right. And wasn't he told that he could leave Sweden? Like he already was very, he cooperated with the Swedish police. They told him he could go back to the UK. Then they stole his laptop on his way out. Hmm. His his computers were confiscated when he was trying to leave. But yeah, he reported to Swedish authorities. He gave an interview. They told him he was free to leave. And right before he went into the embassy, um, the the Swedish government was like, hey, could you come back? We'd really like to have you back. There's something we forgot to go over. And Julian goes, I'll be happy to come back if you can guarantee me in writing that when my feet hit Swedish soil, I will not be immediately extradited or renditioned, grabbed up and taken to the United States. And they're uh-huh. like, so we're not going to do that. But if you could just show up, that that would be super. And he's like, no, I'll give an interview here. We'll pay for two Swedish investigators to come to the embassy to interview me. We'll do that on our dime. I'm happy to give an interview. I can do it via video link or I can do it in person here in London, but I'm not going to come to Sweden without this guarantee. And they were like, so if you could just show up, you know, and that's how that went for years and years and years, perfectly willing to go on record about it as long as it was where he was at or with a guarantee that it wasn't just a, a ruse to have him black bag. Right. Um, and Sweden had an extensive history of being very willing to cooperate with the United States when it comes to extraditing people to the United States. So there was a legitimate fear there. And um, this whole thing, like Steve was saying, has been completely uh, spun out of context. And then we saw there's so much with this case, of course, there is just so much evidence of the American empire that we're existing in because after he was arrested on uh, April 11th last year, like a few weeks later, Sweden reopened uh, this so-called investigation. They reopened um, at least a, I don't know what you would, again, I'm, I don't know what to call it, but they just were, well, they wanted to reopen this case again. So you, you really do see here the, uh, the authority and the power the U.S. has uh, over the other countries who are involved, yet they are very much complicit in this. And then, of course, Ecuador uh, completely 
uh, shunned their own citizen. I mean, he was not only uh, granted asylum, but also citizenship. And that was revoked. And um, they're they're really at fault here for what they've done to one of their own uh, people. and let's let's kind of let's kind of expand on that a little bit, because Rafael Correa's administration did give Ecuadorian citizenship to Julian Assange in 2017, with the help of the U.S. State Department, the CIA, and the blessing of the Trump administration. Oh. The Correa administration was defeated extra legally without uh, uh, a, a free and fair election process, this puppet, Lenin Moreno, was installed as the leader of Ecuador. They promised him money. They promised him the, the full support of the U.S. of the United States and whatever decisions that he would make for Ecuador. There were some very lucrative contracts that were signed with uh, U.S.-based companies uh, in order to get natural resources from Ecuador. And the puppet, Lennon Moreno, has not only cooperated fully with all of the megalomaniacal pig whims of the United States, uh, but he is 100% responsible for being the reason why Julian's Julian citizenship was revoked and why he was trafficked out of that embassy, because that's what it was. It was a trafficking. Julian Assange was sold by Roth or by Lennon Moreno for an IMF loan. Right. Well, and while he was in the embassy, uh, he was being uh, spied on as well. So what happened was, is the uh, Ecuadorian or the, this is a very complicated story, but uh, to put it simply, the CIA through a private company uh, contracted a private security firm, a Spanish security firm, UC Global, Undercover Global, and uh, they turned the uh, security system into a surveillance system, and there was a separate feed actually created for the CIA, and this was all going back to the U.S. Separate and, servers? Yes. It was insane what's happening. It is so uh, absolutely illegal what they've done. So what that means is that all of his communications uh, with his attorneys, with his doctor, well, not all of them, but for the time period in which uh, this surveillance system was set up. um, Yeah, from 2017 to April 11, 2019. His communications with his attorneys have been uh, accessed by his prosecutors and his persecutors back here in the U.S. And this case should be thrown out of court just on that basis. And of course, it hasn't been. But Max Blumenthal, um, well, El Pais originally broke this story just recently, about a month ago. Max Blumenthal further expanded on this. And there's just so much evidence to suggest that it really was the CIA that was um, directing David Morales, the owner and CEO of UC Global, and this whole spying operation. They were just using this private security firm to um, have gr- to have access to Assange from inside the embassy. And we can't forget Sheldon Adelson's role yes. in this. Yeah. Sheldon Adelson, casino magnate, massive Trump donor, one of the reasons that the Trump campaign had so much money to throw around in 2016. Right. Sheldon Adelson's casinos 
were used as uh, uh, way stations and like sort of I, I you know off book meeting spots for CIA active CIA officers to meet with Lenin Moreno or Lenin Moreno's personal security and members of UC Global in order to pass along uh, the the hard copies of the. Uh, I guess, you know, spy files that that UC Global had collected from the embassy. And this wasn't just related to Julian or the conversations he had with his attorneys. Every single person who came to visit Julian Assange had to give up their uh, electronic devices upon entering. Those devices were scanned, logged, and sent to the CIA. Uh, in one case, uh, Cassandra Fairbanks was like locked in a fucking broom closet for a number of hours without access to her phone uh, because they were going through it. Uh, th this is a gross violation of Ecuador's constitution, their constitutional rights, but, but also uh, it shatters lawyer-client lawyer confidentiality and the uh, the UC Global security operators had bugged the women's bathroom at the embassy because that's where Julian had started to meet with his attorneys. He he was like, I don't know if I can beat the surveillance that's in my lodgings, so I'm going to go down the hall and have these meetings in the bathroom, hmm. thinking you know it's unconscionable that anyone would put a live camera feed in the women's bathroom yet here's the cia doing just that so everyone who every single woman who went into that bathroom had her rights grossly violated the this is uh yeah again this we talk a lot about julian assange because he is the the human being who is being tortured, who is being persecuted, and who's being held up as the example of what happens when someone publishes information that goes outside of the narrative. But this is much, much, much bigger than Julian Assange. This impacts all of us. Without investigative journalism, all we have is think tank talking points, advertiser-driven content, and state fucking television. Yeah, it's pretty much, it's getting pretty bad. And, and looking at the example of Julian, I mean, they basically overthrew the government of Ecuador. <laughs> I mean, they had a lot of reasons that they wanted to do that. But, uh, you know, certainly being able to get a hold of Julian Assange was one of them. And that's just crazy to think about. I mean, that this one guy is considered so much of a threat by, you know, the establishment is actually uh, almost shocking. And it's just because he's willing to publish the stuff that they don't want anybody to see, you know? <laughs> I mean, we haven't, and we should, let's get to the whole, well, I actually wanted to ask you guys a little bit about the timeline here, because he's been in the Ecuadorian embassy. He, he was there for a long time. I mean, it was like seven years or something like seven that? Seven and a half years, yeah. That's crazy, because he, and he was allowed outside communication. Like, I was trying to, in my mind, uh, understand the timeline when uh, the DNC stuff came out and the emails that that were leaked because he was in the embassy at the time that that happened and he yeah. was still but he was still able to uh, do interviews and such he was in communication with the outside world at least at that point 
up until January of 2019. And then they, uh, they killed his internet feed. Uh, That was also when they started stealing his shaving equipment. That picture that, that is pretty infamous at this point of him getting dragged out where he's got uh, a scraggly beard and, uh, you know, longer hair and looks unkempt. That was intentional. That was done by UC Global Security hmm. to make sure that he looked disheveled, that he presented uh, a picture of, you know, the, a, a half-crazed fucking gnome right? instead of someone who has been a victim of prolonged psychological torture. Um, but yeah, for it, he went in, he went into the embassy in 2012. Uh, and, and for that, the entire period of time, he was able to, uh, maintain and fulfill his duties as the publisher of WikiLeaks. Uh, he was able to give interviews. As you said, he gave a number of very, very powerful, speeches to various conferences and other shows uh he had his own show on rt Hmm. during this time right the reason cypherpunks is a book is because it came out of conversations that they had that were in two episodes of his show on on rt Uh, which by the way if people are watching right now and you haven't read cypherpunks go do that Please go do that. I'm going to quote from the end of it, of the end of the introduction here real quick. Uh, And I want people to take this to heart. I know I I earlier said, if you take one thing away from this, let it, let it be read Whitney Webb's entire collection of work. I'm going to add to that and say, if you take two things away from this, uh, let this be the second. Uh, Julian says at the, the end of the foreword there, our task is to secure self-determination where we can, to hold back the coming dystopia where we cannot, and if all else fails, to accelerate its self-destruction. Now, to add to the situation, uh, to just to reiterate what Steve was saying, that is an excellent book. I do encourage everybody uh, to read it. It's basically a conversation uh, that Julian has with uh, three friends who are very uh, sophisticated and intelligent people themselves when it comes to technology. Um, but to add to uh, what Steve was saying and sort of the timeline here, what is so fascinating to me and really shows that these governments were clearly working together, um, or at least there's evidence here of that, is um, in March of 2018, that is when Assange's internet access was completely cut off. March 2018 was also the day or also the month that his uh, an indictment was filed against him, the first one. So it's so interesting that that happened at the same time, clearly showing um, that there had to have been a coordinated effort here. And Mm -hmm. what that tells me, at least, is that uh, they were trying to create a situation in the embassy that was so intolerable and so... uh, just difficult to even withstand and continue to endure to get him to leave that embassy on his own. And uh, that in itself is also uh, torture. Niels Melzer also cites this, but of course there was a backdoor deal going on. And um, 
yeah, that's just a really interesting uh, point there. Again, it could be complete coincidence, but I seriously doubt it. Sure. No, there there are no coincidences no. when it comes to the machinations uh, of global intelligence agencies and their stranglehold right. on democracies or representative republics. We don't have governments that run intelligence agencies anymore, Doug. We have intelligence agencies that run governments. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, clearly what's going on. I mean, this coordinated attack against Julian Assange is just indicative of what's happening uh, all over the place in terms of, um, you know, the surveillance state growing, the corporate control and the corporate. I mean, it's actually interesting to me that you're telling me that they outsourced to UC Global all of this, you know, <laughs> all of this intelligence work. I mean, that's what's even more phenomenal to me is the governments don't even do it themselves. These are private corporations that get outsourced this job and do this work for them. So, yeah, I mean, no question that we're seeing, uh, you know, this huge segment of you know, what's called the deep state now in control, you know, really in the driver's seat. I mean, of the executive branch in the United States, certainly, and and in many countries around the world, it's, um, it's more than frightening. And so just to continue on the timeline, because first we had the collateral murder that really pissed him off. So we see the Sweden response, and then he's holed up in the Ecuador uh, the Ecuadorian embassy in London, but then we have the the DNC leaks and man, and I went back actually in, to prep for this uh, and watch the interview because I, I he was he must have been in the embassy at the time, but he was still doing interviews. The interview on Dutch TV where he brings up basically the potential. Of course, he didn't admit the source, but he talked about the you know, the DNC staffer who just got murdered in Washington, D.C., which brings up the whole Seth Rich thing, too. And so now we've got the whole Russiagate thing. Is I that mean, the, you know, the I will pay 20 grand for information on Seth Rich's murder they, interview? They ended up doing that, I think, a little bit later. This was the first time he even mentioned the possibility that it, that he uh, the, the reporter asked, uh, you know, are your sources in danger? And his response was, well, there was this DNC staffer who just got murdered last weekend, you know, and the reporter tried to press him on it. Like, are you saying this was your source? And he said, well, I don't reveal my sources, but, um, you know, it was certainly a, 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 an indication that maybe there was a connection there coming straight from Julian Assange's mouth. And uh, just seems to me like, of course, right after that, then they really amp it up and um, oh, you know, hell broke loose. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, his own organization, the Freedom of the Press Foundation, that he and John Barry Barlow put together as a result of the the banking blockade that WikiLeaks suffered after the release of Collateral Murder and Cablegate and the Iraq and Afghan war logs, where WikiLeaks uh, was uh, removed from Amazon servers. And uh, MasterCard and Visa refused to accept process payments going to WikiLeaks, um, which was a, a first of its kind, by the way, where, where this ever happened with a journalistic outlet. Um, the banking blockade happened and Freedom of the Press Foundation was created uh, as a, a way to circumvent this and to give an, uh, a, an organization that would be able to accept payments and then filter them not just to WikiLeaks but to the defense funds of other whistleblowers mm -hmm. and a, a number of very deserving organizations um 
Julian and Barlow intentionally kept themselves in the shadows on this, which may have been uh, a poor decision in hindsight. Uh, but they, they uh, organized this board with, of all fucking people, John Cusack was a part of it, hmm. uh, still is to this day. Um, and when the DNC leaks came out, and the immense pressure on outlets that were reporting these to make sure that while they were doing it, they were smearing Julian Assange's character and smearing him as a Russian asset and all of this other nonsense. Freedom of the Press Foundation straight threw him under the bus and like, disowned the man entirely and this is an organization by the way that has ed snowden sitting as its uh uh chairman of the board hmm. and ed has gone to defend julian on a number of occasions but his organization will not fucking just yeah, it's a it's a head scratcher it, it is yeah you have to wonder you know well, I think it's pretty obvious, of course, that there was probably some people who were influential in this organization uh, that were perhaps there with some bad intentions. That seems to happen. We saw that, of course, with uh, Sigi was there, um, a, a part of WikiLeaks to cause uh, problems and to undermine the organization. Unfortunately, this is something uh, that happens sometimes. And um, it's unfortunate that sometimes it is uh, successful. And I think to another, well, I don't know if this would be perhaps a deterrent, but it's something I feel should be brought up as well, is that anybody who really challenges the establishment and um, either as a journalist or as an activist, if you are really, really effective, uh, you are going to have to seriously pay the price for that, especially if you are in the five eyes uh, countries, one of the five eyes countries, which uh, I'm sure the viewers are aware, but in case uh, you're not, the US, UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And of course, this happens in other uh, countries as well, but uh, I'm more knowledgeable in the five eyes countries. Uh, you will be targeted for that, for your activism and for your journalism. It happens to people, and um, there are documented cases of this. Uh, Snowden documents. Uh, really highlight this. And not only does it happen on the ground and in person, but also online too with smear campaigns. And um, it happens to people who support Assange as well. Um, it happens to uh, our good friend, uh, Susie Dawson. It's happened to uh, another friend of ours, Elizabeth Mueller, uh, Craig Murray now too. You can argue, and I think it's highly likely that uh, perhaps the case that he is uh, finding himself in right now, where he's uh, facing contempt of court charges, uh, that could perhaps have to do with his reporting on Assange's case. And it is. It's well, in the indictment. Hmm. Yeah. They specifically cite his work during the, the first round of the hearings in that indictment. It is a direct and not just it's so it's Assange and it's Salman that or Salmon that they're they're getting him for. But right. it, it is in, in the fucking official charges. It, They're claiming that he influenced the outcome of a, 
a, a trial by reporting on it. It's it's so nonsensical. But the point being here is that, you know, people who do step up and are very vocal advocates uh, for Assange and just for other movements, you will unfortunately pay the price for that. Now, that is not to say that that should deter anybody from uh, doing this work. Uh, it shouldn't deter you at all. Keep going. Keep uh pushing through. There are people who have been able to um, still get through this and still put out great work. The point being is to get you to stop doing your work and to stop uh, being politically active. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this just goes back to that original point. And I'm thinking about, you know, the concept of the fourth estate here where the function of the press is actually supposed to reveal, you know, the press is supposed to be revealing exactly what is the corruption that's going on behind the scenes uh, and the fact of the matter is that right now, that's not happening. I mean, if anything, the press, the, certainly the corporate press is covering things up for, for the corporate government elite. But um, even the independent media, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a sketchy world. If you really start to be hard hitting, you know, things may happen to you. I was thinking about um, other stories while I was doing research. Gary Webb, of course, who exposed the CIA selling cocaine. Uh, during the whole Iran-Contra thing, what happened to Michael Hastings when his car mysteriously explodes while he's driving down the street? I mean, we, you know, we see these examples and people know that they're, I mean, it, it has, it's had and is having a really, um, like, uh, it's an oppressive atmosphere in journalism right now where people are afraid to speak the truth. And they're certainly afraid to really go after the corruption that's happening. Because if you start exposing individuals that are well-connected, you know, yeah, I think we all know, you know, the price is going to get paid. And that's why where they're hanging Julian out to dry. I mean, it's almost uh, just hearing what you guys were saying about keeping him in jail for as long as possible. It's not even about, they don't even want to take it to trial and let people, um, you know, no, there doesn't need to be a conclusion to this, you know, as long as he's in prison and being tortured, like you're talking about, Taylor, he stands as an example to all other journalists everywhere, that if you speak up, and you expose what we're doing, then this is what's going to happen to you. So I mean, just well, and there's no, there's no, uh, you know, if he, if he lands on U.S. soil and gets a day in court, then we'll all be able to read these transcripts and we'll all be able to have right. access to this information is not how that works the eastern district of virginia where he would be tried is uh, it's called espionage court we know exactly what the hearing will look like because we've talked to john kiriaku who went through it himself wow when yeah. he was uh when he was being stitched up under the Espionage Act by the Obama administration for revealing the U.S. torture program. So what happens when you go to espionage court is it is entirely sealed, entirely closed off to press, to a public gallery. The only people that are in this courtroom are the judge, the jury, you, your, pro your lawyer, and the prosecution. And that's fucking it none of the details from your hearing emerge unless the judge specifically comments on one thing or another mm -hmm. this is a national security matter so there's a gag order placed on both the prosecutor and the defense you know the defense lawyers and they can't talk about it the jury themselves 
when they go to deliberate after testimony is given, they're given a heavily redacted transcript where tons of words are edited, changed because they have national security implications. So they will be reading basically a, a series of nonsense paragraphs that have nothing to do with what was going on during the actual court proceedings because they can't use the words that affect national security in the transcript. It is the furthest thing from a fair hearing. It is the furthest thing from the truth will come out when we get our day in court. Mm -hmm. John Kiriakou's lawyer told him because he went in with the same kind of thing. Like, I'm going to get my day in court and it's all going to come out. And then people are going to know that I was, you know, I, I've been targeted by this government and that uh, the torture program does in fact exist and that people have the right to this information. His lawyer told him, you dumbass, <laughs> this isn't about what's fair or what's equitable or what's right. This is about mitigating damage. Yeah. And also, too, the jury, it's not like you're going to have this impartial jury that you are guaranteed uh, in the Constitution. His jury would be made up of a pool of uh, intelligence agents, former intelligence agents, which really is not even a thing. Uh, once you're CIA, FBI, you are always a part of the club. Of course, unless you're a whistleblower like John Kiriakou or Ray McGovern, it's a little bit different. Um, but... Uh, or a dissident like Ray McGovern. But uh, for the most part, your jury is going to be made up of uh, their family members or people who are deeply embedded in this intelligence community. There's no chance in hell of getting a fair uh, trial at all. And I believe that his attorney uh, would be, or anybody who's tried in this court, a national security case, you are given an attorney by somebody who is within the system, which is inherently unfair. So essentially you're given like a national security uh, defense attorney, if I'm correct here, and they're within the system. And uh, it's just a really, really uh, unfair yeah. process. And uh, like Steve was saying, none of this information would be made public. The press doesn't have a right to uh, be there. So it would be closed door. And who, who even knows what would, what would happen. We hope, of course, that uh, it does not get to that point. But when you hear that narrative at times, oh, all the truth will come out. Uh, certain groups like to put forth that myth. It is a myth. Uh, fuck those Q idiots. And fuck the NSA limited hangout that is QAnon for yeah. doing the work of the deep state and hijacking the thoughts of people who would otherwise be active about this mm -hmm. because that's where that narrative comes from. Everything's going to be okay. When he gets here, daddy, Donald Trump is really protecting Julian Assange. Yeah. And he's re you know, he's going to be the one who, uh, who exposes the cabal. Donald Trump is the fucking cabal. <laughs> Bill Barr is the fucking cabal. It all, oh, it infuriates me. Well, when it comes to the political theater, I mean, I think that um, people like us were actually making a dent enough to frighten these guys that they, you know, manufacture a, a Donald Trump story and a QAnon story to suck those people who, you know, I mean, we, 
who were really listening to what uh, you know we were talking about, but suck them back into the left-right paradigm and pretend like, oh, I'll just back Trump. I mean, this I've seen it happen so many times, actually, this co-option of different political movements. And it's sad that people fall for it every time because the left-right paradigm just gives them that that excuse. You know, it's so easy to root for, you know, your team and hate the other team. It's just part of a primal human nature. And they exploit this to make sure that we don't all get on the same page ever. You know, um, my team has a post-partisan mindset and snacks. Yeah. <laughs> you should be on my team for, for the, the snacks alone, but, but for the, the post-partisanship party. <laughs> is, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a big problem that we have in the U.S., and I think this is something that's very unique to the United States, is that we uh, create a whole uh, identity when it comes to supporting certain candidates, which is something that I have learned, which I find very interesting, is really not normal in other countries. We uplift uh, politicians as rock stars. We focus on their differences rather than their similarities, and they're more similar than they are different, in my opinion. And also, too, I mean, elections are, uh, to be honest, are extremely low. I think, Steve, you're with me on this. Extremely low on my list of concerns, because ultimately, nothing is going to change. In the Snowden documents, in their own documents, they say, we do not care who wins this election? Uh, because ultimately, whether it's someone that's ideologically on the left or ideologically on the right, whomever it is, we will ultimately, being the intelligence community, we will ultimately maintain total power and total control and our at least a relationship in foreign policy, a relationship with other countries and our foreign policy is not going to change. So I see elections as something very uh, low on my list of concerns and not sure. one single person elected into office can really create any meaningful change. Unfortunately, it, if you have a machine that has a design flaw in it, that makes the machine kill you. If the machine is designed to kill you and your solution to fixing this machine is that every two to four years, you're going to slap a couple of shiny new parts on it. All you're doing is prolonging the life of a machine designed to kill you. Right. And none of these candidates, none of these elected officials are ever going to stray from their allegiance to the national security state. So uh, until we rank and file regular human beings decide we have to build a new machine. We're fine. Right. <laughs> well, I remember. I, I, I and it, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was <laughs> well, going to say Taylor's right. <laughs> it really, it really hit home for me. I, I think Obama at one point actually sincerely probably wanted to close down Guantanamo and they just told him no, you know. And at that point, I was like, well, it's the president has to ask these guys, you know, will you do this for me? And they said, no, we're not going to do that. And I've, I mean, I've just seen it. I mean, just recently, right? I mean, Donald Trump comes out and says, hey, why aren't we looking into this hydroxychloroquine thing for coronavirus? It seems to be working in all these other countries. Why can't we try it here? And, you know, obviously he was told no, you know, no, you can't be talking about that, Donald. That's not part of the program. So at that point, we have to say, obviously the president is not that powerful, right? I mean, the, the guy doesn't he can't make choices he doesn't make decisions he's just a guy standing in front of a camera 
and the political theater rolls on. And you can also, I mean, just going going on about this, but I mean, you can just chart the uh, the line from, you know, really probably 50 years ago to what's happening now. But I mean, certainly, you know, from 9-11 through Obama, you know, through Trump, you're still seeing the same, the same, uh, you know, the same setup, like this thing in Portland that's happening now could have never happened. Obama's the one that signed the indefinite detention laws and made it possible for these feds to go in and just pick people up off the streets. And, you know, so everyone who's complaining now about how Trump's such a fascist has to remember, you know, where were you back when Obama signed this law? And we were the ones that were saying, hey, this is serious. You know, the federal government shouldn't be allowed to be able to do this. But it's just insane. I know it's um, it's driving me nuts. We are getting a little bit late here. I mean, two hours is a pretty long conversation to have. I wanted to just do a couple of uh, kind of finishing questions. One is, what is WikiLeaks up to now? I remember like the Vault 7 release happened maybe a few years ago now. That was probably before they had taken, Assange was still probably in charge. Do you think WikiLeaks, is it still going strong? Is it? Well, is it, it, we, it is. We know it is. The, the, in uh, 2019, uh, they published um, Fish Rot, which mm-hmm. exposed uh, massive corruption in Namibia uh, that was in, in, influenced by U.S. corporations. Uh, they published all of the, the internal emails from a couple of the OPCW whistleblowers. Here, here's how this, I like... If someone has information and they are are ready to blow the whistle on, you know, a company or a government, then they can securely submit that to WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks will vet it and they will publish. Because of the intense character assassination campaign, it seems like people are less willing to go through WikiLeaks which is a shame because they've gone to the intercept or they've gone to uh, like mainstream media outlets mm-hmm. and the, the whistleblowers who have come forward to the intercept or to, in David McBride's case, the Australian broadcasting company uh, have been outed. And not only are they facing charges or in jail, but uh, at least in Australia's case, uh, the journalist who published David McBride's information about Australia's uh, uh, participation in war crimes in Afghanistan, that journalist may be facing charges. Um, in the case of The Intercept, they're allowed to continue to operate. But as of right now, the one person who has served the longest sentence under the Espionage Act to date, reality winner, still incarcerated. Um, it's been over 1,100 days. She just tested positive for the COVID uh, after being recently denied compassionate release by the uh, by a judge there in Texas. Um, it is, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's grim, but WikiLeaks is still a functioning publishing outlet. And if there are whistleblowers who are listening right now, you can safely take your information and get it to WikiLeaks. And if it is valid information, 
and passes the vetting, the, the extensive vetting that WikiLeaks puts it through, then it will be published. Yeah, actually, um, while I was in London uh, covering the hearings, I actually met and uh, interviewed Kristen Raffinson, who is the editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks. Um, I believe he's, uh, I guess you could say he's taking on Assange's role now that Assange is no longer able to fully participate in WikiLeaks, of course. And Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the questions that came up uh, was, it, what is WikiLeaks going to be up to in the future? And uh, yeah, it still will be uh, running and um, still publishing material. And uh, we saw recently too, of course, the OPCW leaks, very powerful leak right. that came out. Uh, it just takes a little bit longer, I think, of course, with uh, publishing for WikiLeaks because there's a lot of material to go through and there's a a vetting process to ensure that the documents are, of course, authentic. But then in return, uh, you can rely on this organization because it has a 100% accuracy rate in publishing. Never had to retract a statement once. I don't think any other news organization has that record or can say that. And um Yeah, there's been some really, really fascinating stuff to come out over the years. And I think, too, of uh, how it has probably impacted our view of not only the world, especially when it comes to, you know, Vault 7, um, but also how we view media. Our view of media is a little bit different now. And we've seen uh, different mainstream organizations try to adopt similar technology that WikiLeaks has. But as Steve was saying And when I'm talking about technology, I mean the Dropbox, the secure Dropbox. But uh, as Steve was saying, if you are a whistleblower, if you have information, your best option is to provide it to WikiLeaks because it is the one organization that is very, very much dedicated to protecting sources and to protecting whistleblowers and uh, sort of a branch of WikiLeaks or an extension of WikiLeaks. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but affiliated with WikiLeaks is the uh, Courage Foundation, uh, which is an organization that raises money for raises money for um, whistleblowers, and um, that is run by Nathan Fuller. Uh, I believe he's also a journalist as well. So it, it is, like I said, the one organization that will protect you. Uh, they did everything they can to protect Chelsea Manning, and then also did help uh, Snowden seek refuge in uh, Russia, even though Snowden did not leak to. WikiLeaks, they still went ahead and helped him. And the reason why he is uh, not being held uh, in a U.S. prison right now is because of WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, and really Sarah Harrison, WikiLeaks staff member. Yeah, which, by the way, that's part of the superseding indictment now, too. Yes. Hmm. And that's something that hardly anyone has mentioned in that superseding indictment like they focus on the the uh, uh you know anonymous connection and the lulsec hacks and uh and really try to confuse uh lulsec and antisec but there's a, a part of that superseding indictment that um seeks to criminalize retroactively what Sarah Harrison and, and WikiLeaks did and Julian Assange did uh, in, in order to secure the freedom of Edward Snowden. It, it is, it, yeah, it's fucking, I can't right. believe Outrageous. that more people haven't picked up on that. Well, some good news that at least WikiLeaks is still going strong. 
I mean, it's, it takes a lot of courage from those guys to keep it going after what they've seen happen to Julian. So, um, you know, pretty amazing work there. And at least they're still on the ball and able to be exposing some of this stuff as it comes out. And as you're saying, obviously doing a much better job of protecting their sources than some of these other more mainstream outlets um, where suddenly we see their source get picked up and, and locked up. Um, so um, probably just should wrap it up here, but Taylor, I want you to um, give us a little bit more information about the actual extradition hearing that's going on and then let people know, you know, what's happening, what, like what's going to happen in September so we know what to expect. Yeah, so uh, as of right now, the second half of the substantive extradition hearing is set to take place at the Old Bailey in London uh, beginning on September 7th. It should last about three weeks, and this is the evidentiary uh, portion of the hearing where people are going to be testifying and be given uh, more evidence. Uh, that date could change, but as of right now, it is starting in September. The next callover hearing is scheduled for Monday, uh, July 27th, where this latest indictment is uh, supposed to be addressed in court. It was addressed a little bit in the previous hearing, but Assange is uh, required to attend this callover hearing on Monday. And um, attorneys have said that in September, whatever decision is made by the judge, uh, it is highly likely that either side is going to appeal the decision. So this is a process that could take several, uh, several years. And right. Um, right. So I'll be on this. Steve's going to continue covering it. Action for Assange is going to continue covering it. Um, you could find uh, my work at activism Munich. That's act TV is a Munich and that's on YouTube. I have my own playlist. It is Julian Assange case updates. And about every week on average, I'll have an update come out on the case and also Craig Murray's case as well. I started to pick that up. So there'll be more coming out with that. And then also, um, if you're on social media, uh, you can catch me um, on Twitter at, uh, at underscore Taylor Hudak. And if you're on Instagram as well, which I'm not very good at using, um, you can find me at Journalist Taylor. All right. Sounds good. I mean, it looks like he's probably going to be in uh, Great Britain for a long time then. It wouldn't, no matter what happens, this is going on appeal. I mean, I guess unless they let him out, which is I, unfortunately probably unlikely, but then uh, it'll be on appeal. It's uh, unlikely that he'll actually be extradited to the U.S. anytime soon then, huh? Uh, I, anything could happen with this case, but I would say if you look at what has happened historically, extradition cases can take years and it seems like this one will take a long time. But again, um, who, who really knows what's going to happen, sure. but uh, the best option of course, at this point is for him to be uh, let out of prison right now. And for this case to be dropped by someone who has the authority to do so. All right. Sounds good. Steve, you're ready to do a little more marketing. <laughs> you can uh you can find the show that i host uh on the rockfin on d live and on youtube by typing in slow news day podcast into the search bar uh i'm on twitter at slow news day show uh i do have a a facebook account for the show but i yeah <laughs> and oh god it's so depressing uh and i think it's supposed to be um 
so I don't really post there much. I'm much, much more active on Twitter. Uh, because of my work schedule, uh, I, I don't do too many shows during the week. I always do a show on Sundays that takes place at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. The free Assange vigils, again, are Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern and Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Um, we have, uh, we've got some really cool guests lined up for that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Stefania Maruzzi, the incredible Italian journalist, uh, will be on, uh, David Robix, who, uh, is, uh, a, just a wonderful musician, uh, will be on Tuesday. Um, and again, we're going to be, I'm trying to set up a show that's all, uh, VIPs members, veteran intelligence professionals. Oh, for sanity I'll be members. looking forward to that one. Yeah. So they're trying to get Ray and Benny and John Kiriakou all on at the same time. Awesome. Um, uh, maybe, uh, and I'd like to put J Danny Shorson on that panel too, just, just because he's such an incredible and, uh, valid voice in the anti-war movement. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. Go, please, please, if you can donate to the GoFundMe, please do that. If you can't, I totally get it. Uh, you know, there's 50 million people unemployed. Uh, there's very little relief for these people who, who have lost their jobs due to, uh, um, I guess, a virus, but more through government machinations um but share the link you know that that helps getting the link out there really helps uh so please do that all of the super chats that come into slow news day are getting rolled over into the gofundme so there's another way to support there although i would recommend donating directly to the gofundme because youtube takes like 40 percent of the super chats uh, so it's, it's kind of a, a brutal payment method. Uh, but, um, yeah, I'll, Oh, I'll be interviewing, uh, Chad Wilson, uh, former green party presidential candidate this evening. Uh, I've been doing, I guess, uh, I, I kind of stumbled into the fact that the green party is totally rigged their primary and that they're sort of falling apart from the uh -huh. inside. Um, so I had Ian Schlackman on, I had Dario Hunter on, Chad Wilson will be on tonight. Uh, and, and look, man, like I'm going to expose corruption wherever I see it. And if you didn't want me talking about it on my show, you shouldn't have done this corrupt shit. <laughs> Yeah, right on. And uh, I'll let people know that I have been your host. My name is Doug McKenty. Uh, you can check out my weekly interview podcast at The Shift with Doug McKenty on YouTube. Uh, I'm also on Facebook uh, or any of your podcast hosting sites. Uh, and you can check out my website at www.theshiftnow.com. I appreciate everybody for listening. This has been the 11th round table. Produced by Transparent Media Truth. I've been happy to host, and I want to thank uh, Steve Poikinen and Taylor Hudak for being our guests on this show. Thanks so much for your work, and thanks a lot for informing our audience about what's been going on with Julian Assange. Thank you. Yeah, this thank has been you. fun. Yeah. Thank you. You bet. You guys have a great day.
Hey, everybody, and thanks for listening to that, the 11th roundtable discussion. What a great show. I love having the deeper conversations that we can have with with a long-form interview program like this and the roundtable discussions. Uh, just give everybody such an opportunity to kind of get what they're thinking off their chest and, and uh, have a, more of an informal conversation about what's going on. It was fun because these two guys had worked together before, uh, and they were really comfortable around each other. So uh, I thought the conversation had a lot of great flow, went really well. I hope uh, that you got caught up on the information about Julian Assange like we kind of talked about at the beginning. There's been a media blackout, essentially, in the United States. So uh, if you live here in the United States like I do, you probably aren't hearing very much about it these days. Uh, so it's even more important that people like uh, this Action for Assange Network are getting the word out so people at least can hear uh, about what's going on from some independent media sources, you know. And that's what this whole thing is about. Really happy to be able to bring the uh, Assange case to the fore with this episode. Um, press freedom becoming a, a really big deal. I've done some interviews recently about the cancel culture. Um, we've talked with some Zach Voorhees in the past here on the roundtable discussions about what's going on uh, at YouTube and Facebook and Google in general with how they're able to take uh, certain ideas that don't fit into that clear-cut Overton window that corporate media uses to you know to characterize what you're allowed to talk about and what you're not allowed to talk about. When you get too far outside of that window, uh, you know, it gets harder and harder to find this information. And I think Julian Assange uh, kind of is going way outside um, that, that area of uh, acceptable conversation with what he's been doing at WikiLeaks over the last 10 plus years. Um, so we should all really be paying close attention to this one. And uh, I'm glad we had a chance to hash it out today. Hope you all got... Uh, caught up to date with what's going on with the case, and I uh, hope you feel informed. Um, it was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun. Uh, I just want to make a shout out one more time. You can check out Taylor Hudak's work at Activism Munich on YouTube. She has her own playlist, so you can find all of her stuff there. Uh, and she's on Twitter, at underscore Taylor Hudak. So if you want to see what she's up to, please check that out. Uh, Steve Poikinen is doing the Slow News Day podcast on YouTube, and he's also on Twitter, at Slow News Day Show. So uh, you can get involved in conversations with him on Twitter as well. Um, really doing the, a great job of getting the word out, so uh, I really want to applaud one more time the work that they're doing. My name is Doug McKenty. You can find out more about my interview podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on Facebook and Twitter. And I am... Uh, also on the web at theshiftnow.com if you want to see um, more of my individual one-on-one -on -one interviews. Uh, they're long form as well, also very informative. So um, this one goes out to all the independent journalists out there. I know we're all trying to keep close track of what's happening with Julian Assange, and uh, we wish him the best. Uh, and thank you all for listening. And think about going to uh, that GoFundMe account. Um, journalists like Steve want to be able to make their way to Washington, D.C., and uh, we need some support in order to make that happen so that uh, they can represent for Julian Assange in D.C. while the uh, extradition hearing goes on. So uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll be looking forward to seeing you next week for the next roundtable. All right. Take care.
opinions and ideas expressed in this roundtable discussion do not necessarily reflect the views of Transparent Media Truth, but only those of the speakers participating in the discussion. Under the Copyright Disclaimer within Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, allowances are made for fair use of public content for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. Fair use is a use permitted by copyright statute that might otherwise be infringing. Nonprofit, educational, or personal use tips the balance in favor of fair use.